This is the Engaging Mobility Podcast, where we discuss topics related to transportation and aging, and consider the intersection of longevity and the social need for being able to move around in our communities. I'm Terry Cassidy, and I co-host this podcast with Susie Tichinski. We are so glad you've joined us today. Hi, everybody. Thank you for joining us today. Our guest today is Dr. Miriam Monahan. She's an occupational therapist and certified driving rehabilitation specialist. She has over 20 years of experience in driving rehabilitation and is recognized for her clinical and behind the wheel evaluation and intervention skills. She is the founder of the 501c3 nonprofit Driver Rehabilitation Institute. She is an adjunct professor for the University of Florida's Certificate in Driver Rehabilitation Therapy Program. She has served as a consultant on numerous federal projects and lectures extensively on topics related to driving rehabilitation and community mobility. Dr. Monahan has been the clinical expert in multiple studies involving medical conditions and driving. She practices driving rehabilitation through Smith OT and Driving in Petaluma, California. Hi, Miriam. Thank you so much for joining Susie and I. Well, thanks for having me. There are so many things that I would love to talk to you about. I feel like we could, <laughs> we could, are going to have to work to stay on task here. Um, okay. I do want to just acknowledge that Susie and I both have known you professionally for quite a while. And, um, you were a guest speaker, guest part of the first adaptive mobility course that I did about 12 years ago. And I just really have admired what you do and, and found so much of what you do inspirational. So I want to thank you for oh. that. Well, thank you. Thank you. Well, the, the admiration is mutual. So thank you. So will you start out by just telling us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be doing what you're doing now? Yes. Um, you know, I, there's actually a funny story of I was maybe three months into my first OT job and I'm sitting around the table with seven fellow clinicians at the hospital and the manager at the OT department said, I think we should have a driver rehab program. Would anybody volunteer? And no one raised their hand. And I thought, this is a pretty important thing. I think I'll raise my hand. And it's that millisecond moment where I made the decision to raise my hand that my whole life path changed. But I'm sure that's true for so many people of kind of where they are. But my, my journey basically has been that I've worked in hospital-based programs. I even had my own private practice for a period of time um, and, um, and also working at multiple hospitals. I shouldn't just say one hospital, but multiple hospitals and driver rehab. And then um, about 2011, I had another sort of what I call a seismic shift in my OT career, which was that um, I connected with Dr. Sherilyn Klassen at, at the University of Florida. And she had an opportunity to do really one of the first pilot studies on autism and driving. And autism and driving had been sort of this area of particular interest to me. And I had done a lot of clinical work in this area. And I think people... Um, like you, Terry, had maybe, and, and Susie had maybe attended some workshops I had done at ADED, but there really was no research at that time. And so I was really excited to be involved in that research, but that involved moving from Vermont to Florida. And I fortunately 
was married to somebody who could work from pretty much anywhere. And so he uh, really helped clinch the deal with, yes, we should just go do this. So um, I, that's really where I started to learn more about research um, and be the clinical expert and what that really means. Um, and then I've had the great pleasure of being able to help translate and interpret the data. Because you know, one thing we have to remember is that research always lags behind the clinical. So we, we always are in the clinic seeing the first client that we've seen with a particular condition and trying to figure it out way before you're gonna find a book where the research is gonna be there to help you explain what you're going to do. So really appreciating that and being able to be sort of like, well, this is what we see in the clinic when we're working with this population. I really recommend that we do maybe these assessments and so forth. And then when the data comes back out after you've been involved with administering it um, is also helping the researchers interpret why some of these things are happening um, because we've got that experience of working with people in the clinic and on the road. So we're able to kind of decipher some of that stuff. And I find I, I'm, uh, I've, I've learned through the research project process that I am very much what one would call a sort of mechanistic therapist, where I am always looking for the underlying cause of why something happens. And that's how I problem solve things. Um, and that's totally, I didn't realize that it was sort of a particularly sort of unique path that I approach things, but I've kind of discovered that that's really what I do, um, you know, and so forth. I, I love the way you describe that. Thinking of, in particular, thinking about research. And I think when you're in school, when you're just out of school, you feel like everything starts with the literature and, and evidence starts in a book. And I just think that's such an excellent point that our learning and our, our growth as clinicians starts in the clinic. And then we look for things to back up or support the other pieces. I think that's really something we don't talk about enough. Well, I, I think, I think yeah, there's a little, I'm going to kind of phrase it a, a slight difference in that. Um, I, you know, if, if, for example, we, there is so much research on dementia and driving that I wouldn't encourage a clinician to just start out with like, if their first time that they're working with somebody with dementia, just kind of get the clinical experience. They're going to go to the research, right? But, but to recognize that research still has a lot of holes, particularly in driving. Um, one of the things I did for an assignment in my OTD program was to sort of write the history up of, of driver rehabilitation. And it wasn't until 2004 that we really started the first, the, or we meaning the bigger world of research really delved into anything related to driving. And of course, the focus at that time had been older adults. So, you know, I started practicing in driver rehab in 1998. There wasn't a lick of research out there, right? So then the researchers were turning to clinicians in 04 of sort of like, what things do you find sort of correlate with driving performance so that they're not taking a total stab in the dark. They're often turning to clinicians to do that. But we have other conditions, you know, Susie and I were earlier talking this week about a, a congenital disability that, you know, 
people just don't, we don't have any research on it. We, and I don't think we'll have any for a very long time, you know? Um, so as far as being able to provide clinicians with all of that, we don't. So to your point, Terry, um, I get a little frustrated at times. I'll be on my soapbox for a moment here, but when we don't, in the absence of research, clinicians sometimes don't want to delve into it and try to problem solve it. And it's like they're at the evidence-based practice is much more than just using the literature. And we also have to recognize that their research has its limitations. There's no cut points that will ever, you know, perfectly categorize hundred percent of the population. So if you're that one person where those cut points didn't are not a true reflection of your driving, it matters to you, you know? And so we have to just keep that in mind. We have to learn to be what I would, what I le learned from Dr. Claussen was good consumers of research. And that, I, I think that's what my role is, is helping clinicians a little bit with the consumer part. Although you really need a researcher to, to help guide you through the, I, I'm, you know, all of the pieces of that. But just from a consumer standpoint of looking at things like face validity, you know, how many subjects were in this study? Was it constructed in a design that makes sense? Maybe it's not deep in the statistics, but just looking at how something's structured should, should help you evaluate. And just because something has been, you know, um, in a peer-reviewed journal, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's good research. And so those are sort of the consumer highlights that I'd like to just emphasize for clinicians. But anyway. So well, I think you do a great job of that. <laughs> yeah, and to, to piggyback on that, I think um, just the different points you're bringing up with the research and evidence-based practice. I had an OT specialist recently say to me, I just feel like it's, it's part art right? Driving rehab is part art. It's part knowledge and knowing what, what is out there, but it's such a dynamic changing environment and being on the road is such a dynamic changing environment. And right. um, to toot our horns, I think that's why OTs are so good at it. I'm curious, you mentioned um, you were three, mo three months into your first job. You volunteered yourself. Did you jump into driving right away? Did you grow your clinical experience? Like how did, how did that yeah. go? That was a, that's a really good question. And the answer is no, I didn't end up jumping right into it. Um, there was a, there was an underlying blessing in the background that um, of the powers of B of how slow a hospital moves. Right. Um, and that actually ended up being the best thing because, you know, again, remember this, in fact, when I volunteered for this, this was 1995. Um, and it wasn't until three years later that I saw the first client I had but, you know, I think AOTA makes some very good suggestions that a clinician needs to be working for about two years in general practice. And I think that makes sense. But back in my dark ages, that was not something that people really spoke about. It's like, you know, you just did it. Um, but um, I, I, the, the slow motion of things really um, kind of helped to facilitate that. And then, you know, like so many people, you know, Susan Pierce and Carol Blackburn were my mentors as I delved into this area and um, slowly took it forward. So, yeah. 
That's awesome. I had a similar path of three years <laughs> and they said, you don't have enough experience. You need more. And I thought that's okay. I'll get more. I'll get more. Yeah. So yeah. you, were in a, you said you started in the hospital setting eventually then. Um, was it right away the youth or older adults, adults? What was your initial? So, um, you know, like so many people, it was, you know, the older adult, the person who had a stroke, the person who had a traumatic brain injury, but it wasn't new drivers. Um, I, the new driver piece really didn't come into my life until, say, early 2000s. Um, that's when I started working with more new drivers, per se. Okay. And is it that experience that led to the app you're going to share with us? Yeah, um, you know, I, that's, that is um, often a confusion um, yeah. with where that happened. And, 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 I, and I get that and I understand why that happened. Um, when I take you through the business journey, you'll understand why that confusion shows up. But the, the initial idea for this app was or, or this concept of visual search skills for driving um, comes up in my life before I even see my first new driver. And it actually, the genesis of it is from working with a woman that I enjoy talking a little bit about, but she had a traumatic brain injury. That visual search skills, which we call the visual search skills program was was something that was to teach visual search skills for driving using a PowerPoint method. Once that, when I got to the University of Florida, they were looking for a, um, a, a tool to retrain combat veterans who were coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan. They were looking for multiple intervention tools. And the, and the study wasn't to isolate one intervention tool, it was multiple interventions. And I was involved with kind of creating what this intervention would look like. And I had some experience working in Vermont with um, our National Guard that were coming back. Um, and having had some experience with that, I was able, I mean, this just recites circles back to our earlier conversation of how these things develop in the research world. Um, and after experiencing the positive um, visual search skills program, or what I felt just as of observing the subjects working with this tool. Now there's no data at this point, but what my observation of, of how it's impacting them, um, that's when I turned to my husband and I said, hey, do we have the technology out there where we could make videos instead of static images? So the veteran that's sitting in Wyoming has access to a training intervention that isn't reliant on having an OT CDRS sitting next to them because there's just not enough of us. So the, the, the genesis really isn't the autism population, although I get why people would associate that with, with me, but it really started with somebody with traumatic brain injury and then really pushed over the edge with the returning combat veterans. I want to, we want to dive into the app, of course, first, but can you just um, speak to why is visual searching so important for driving? Sure, sure. Um, I, I think what I'd like to do is just kind of step back slightly in, in explanation of that and just, just 
just describe the difference between scanning and search. Yes, please, please. Um, because that's really at the core of, of the whole part of driving, why driving actually, what we're doing as drivers. Okay. So when you were first learning how to drive, or if you've been a driving school instructor, which, which I am one, um, a lot of what you're doing to technically, when you're coaching students, there's a lot of this, you know, you know, scan wide, scan far, look way down the roadway, scan to the right, scan to the left. If I brought you, now I'm going to take you away and give you an analogy because I always do analogies. If, you, if I put you in an unfamiliar room and I, ha- I gave you 30 seconds to scan the room and then come back and write down certain items. I mean, write down, you know, ask you if you saw certain items that I had d- later on you may have not seen those items because your eyes were just moving around the room. Now, if I bring you into that same room with a list and I say, I want you to find, you know, the light switch, I want you to find the, you know, the, the garbage can and, you know, whatever, the book on the shelf or whatever, you're going to use your executive functions to look for those items. So you go, okay, she wants me to find the light switch on the wall. You know approximately where a light switch is going to be located. You're not gonna be looking at the floor for a light switch. You will be looking at the floor for the garbage can. So the search is, is a combination of knowledge of knowing where things are typically located but they're, they're coming from your executive functions, right? Your executive functions is driving where you are looking, okay? I think the biggest, the, you know, the, the biggest challenge we have, whether you're talking about just a, a new driver with no challenges whatsoever, you know, no cognitive differences, for example, or no learning differences, um, we're, we're, they still have challenges with hazard recognition. They have um, trouble um, effectively searching the roadway for things. They miss things more often. Um, and that's because I think we've gone through this route of scanning teaching as opposed to searching teaching and instruction. Yeah. I think that's so, a really valid difference and and good to bring up. And of course, particularly for driving, but I think in other OT settings too, where someone has some sort of, particularly after a visual field cut or something, there's so much about scanning the environment, but there could be some attention toward search as well, depending on what they're trying to do. I so agree with you, Terry. I so agree with you because that that's really such a big part of it. And it's also interesting to understand the sort of the development of how the brain has developed visual search skills. And babies, for example, scan. And then and through childhood and early adolescence, scanning is still a very predominant way of, if you will, of searching. But it's not until sort of later adolescence and um, adulthood that those executive functions, the frontal lobe, really takes control of where you are looking for things. Um, and so that, that we can't say enough about that. Now, when we start to talk about our clients with executive function deficits, 
um, and you add a layer of cognitive load, like that's happening, for example, in a complex driving environment, that search system can really break down because it's your visual search is directed by your executive function and your cognitive function. You're not just ca casually moving your eyes. You're looking for the traffic light. You're looking for the stop sign. And I think we miss the boat if we just try to rehabilitate people with scanning only. And just to your point, Terry, I think we really miss the boat of, of being it. Because once you add cognitive load and you increase the demands on the task, you need to work on an effective, efficient visual search. So you can't look for, you know, unnecessary things when we think about driving. You can't you can't afford to direct your attention to things that aren't a priority in the situation because if you've got too much cognitive load, you can only share it in so many places. You can only direct it in so many places. So you've got to got to narrow that down. I hope that makes sense. I I think it absolutely does, and I it makes me wonder about distraction and divided attention, like kind of how those fit in as well, because. I've certainly driven with people who I would say we don't realize till we're on the road that they really should not be talking while they're driving. <laughs> so yes. there could be multiple reasons for that, but often they will realize, oh, you're right. I missed that. Maybe I shouldn't be talking so much. And, and honestly, this can happen with friends when I'm out driving. <laughs> it's not just with clients, right. but right. How, how do you think, how does that fit in? Well, I think that that that's a that's a nice example of the cognitive load piece, right? You add that addition of having a conversation with somebody and you've added a layer of cognitive load and your visual search skills will go down. Um, now, it depends what your baseline is, right? If your baseline is pretty high, then you could probably support that. And so um, that isn't to say that somebody couldn't have a conversation to drive down the road. We know that works. But if they have... Um, comp, you know, they're not at their baseline or they have some kind of compromise in their cognitive function, any more adding of that cognitive load, that's where the problem's going to show up. So the, the idea behind the Drive Focus app, which I know we're about to talk to, is to say, okay, how can I teach people to more efficiently search the roadway? So they're not distracted by unnecessary things that they can hone in on it and, and focus on things um, most effectively. And I, I just, I do want to ask you more about the app. I have one more thing that comes up when I think of that though, is the, the person who just has a really hard time filtering visual information. So maybe they're not distracted by conversation, but by, oh, I'm a realtor and the houses in this neighborhood are so nice and I really should be paying more attention to the speed limit or things like that. Like we get right. distracted by visual stimuli that doesn't fit into our task. So that's selective attention, right? Um, and, and honing in on the, the things that you need to focus in in the moment and not. Now, some of that comes because, you know, like you say, um, I, I, personally love real estate too. And I like to check out homes as we go by, but I have enough executive functions that I take a glance and I'm like, oh, I'll check Zillow later on that one. But, you know, it's, it's more of, 
you know, I have the ability to, sure, we all get distracted, but the duration of the fixation on that target is really where things get into trouble. Or if there's so much attention to so many things that the selective attention abilities are so impaired, then that ability to focus on just the important things happening on the roadway. Um, So actually that brings a a story of the woman that I said that the light bulb went off in my eye, you know, my head about um, what she was experiencing. This is a woman who um, was in her mid thirties. She had a traumatic brain injury and it was, but I, I should say she was involved in a car crash. They indicated that it may be a concussion is basically what she was left with, with a kind of a diagnosis. She's, she's so mildly impaired in terms of when they looked at her in the emergency room that they sent her home that night. They didn't even keep her in one night for observation. So we're talking real mild injuries, obviously, right? Now, she goes about life. Nobody's told her that she shouldn't drive or anything like that. And then in the first six months, this woman who's had a perfectly good driving record ends up getting three citations and she's been in one or two crashes in six months. I was just amazed. So she is a mom of small kids that ride in the back seat, and she's, she's really concerned that something's wrong. So her physician refers her to the driving program and I take a look at her. Now, this is, this is many years ago, okay? We don't have evidence-based tests to predict driving performance. We just do our best in the clinic. So you use a little bit of, you know, you pull out the trails making part A and B, which turns out to be a really good thing. But, you know, you pull out a bunch of other things and you just figure it out. And then you take the person out on the road. So when I took her out on the roadway and I had her drive for about an hour and 10 minutes, I didn't see one single driving error that could have explained the kinds of crashes and violations she had had. And I thought to myself, okay, there's a legitimate thing going on here. I'm just not seeing it. And then I went back to sort of the basic understanding of a traumatic brain injury of the tendency of the brain to be overstimulated by too much information coming in. So if we think about early rehab and exactly why we were talking earlier, how important it is to have those, those early years of rehab experience. But, um, you know, you turn down the light, you decrease the noise for the early person with brain injury. You put out just so many stimuli, right, to do their bathing and showering or grooming routines. You don't put everything out. You work towards increasing the stimulus, whether it's auditory or visual etc. So I said to myself, okay, maybe the brain is not processing information effectively um, so that her selective attention is not working effectively. And so she needs to just, what we need to do is help her focus on just what the most important things are, because I don't want her to go through the stop sign again. I don't want her to go through the traffic light again. So on an eight by 11 sheet of paper, I just started drawing out the roadway. And I said, these are the things I want you to focus in on. 
And when you see them, let me know. And um, so she would call those things out. And her response to that little bit of a intervention, which one might not think is much, she said, this has just distressed me so much. I feel like I know where to look for things. She said, it's like, I know a stop sign, but you just made me realize that I need to find the stop sign on the right side of the roadway. So when I'm coming up on an intersection, I'm looking to the right to see if there's a stop sign or overhead to look for the traffic light. Oh, wow. Yeah, I, I think this goes on more than we really realize. And, and just, it is very similar to what we were talking about. If you just walk into a room and I say, look for these things, you know where they're located and organized. But I think part of it is that, you know, maybe it's maybe not so dramatic of the location piece of things for everybody. But the fact is, is that people are trying to process more information than they, they can manage. Um, and, that, and that's where um, that piece comes in. So it was from that point that I decided, you know, this might work with a lot of my other clients. So everybody that has sort of a delayed reaction, like they hit hard before, behind the car with the brake lights on, you know, that stop still, or they um, are all together absent. So delayed or absent reactions to things. You know, I think we've all taken out the person with the traumatic brain injury who does really well. And then just at one intersection, they, they, they mess up, right? They, and it's usually because they didn't see the turn lane or they didn't see the traffic light or they didn't see the pedestrian. It's just kind of one item. Now, you're not going to fix this thing by, by changing their motor skills um, for driving. You've got to change it at the beginning of the driving cycle, which is the visual search part. Because every action a driver takes is followed on whether how quickly they identified something in the environment and whether they, prioritize, they processed it as something to be important to notice. And if that part, that initial part is is impaired. The whole part of making a decision about how to respond to the stimulus and then actually responding to the stimulus is broken. You, you're not going to have it. So it's, it's, in my opinion, it's one of the most essential things when we're working with people, particularly with cognitive impairment, that we're, we're honed in on that because, um, I, I don't know that everybody, you know, when you got that, like, like I say, it can be just that one time that they missed the turn lane. Well, you know, they missed the turn arrow and they went in the wrong direction at that lane. That's a significant error. And we have to address it, even if it only happened once. If that's fascinating, I'm thinking of a case I had this week, a gentleman, he has a traumatic brain injury, was doing well. This is the third time I've seen him. And he's uh, an ex-Marine sniper. So he's got this visual scanning and search pattern that he uses and you can hear, like he, he also talks to out loud a lot to himself. So he comes up to an intersection. He goes, I'm looking right, looking left, da, 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 da. but we were in a new intersection, a new environment, and he missed the turning lane. He totally missed the turning lane. And we were, that led to this discussion about how important that was and what that's kind of flagging in my head. And actually a discussion about the app 
for him. <laughs> so I got to follow up with him and make sure he's getting it. Cause we're going to, we're going to, his, we've decided to take a little pause with him and to do a little bit of work on this, this, the visual. Awesome. Yeah. 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 That's great. That's Maybe great. that's a good place to dive into the app a little bit itself. And, you know, so we've got the idea of kind of where it's come from. What, what is it and how do we use it? Okay. So the drive focus app is a, um, it, it works, for example, only on iPads and Androids. So let me just Android tablets. It's a tablet-based application. Um, it uses video of real roadway scenes that are taken from the driver's point of view. So I, I and other, I have driving school instructors that I lend the camera to, or I drive roadways, and we basically film with a GoPro on top of the vehicle. Um, and that allows us to have um, footage that comes from that driver's perspective. But also the reason to use driving school instructors um, is that they are, we want them to demonstrate good driving behaviors and habits. So I want to see good following distance. I want to see those kinds of uh, behaviors because on a subtle level, they're also training on that perspective as well. And that in that piece of it is coming. Um, but what it, what it does is um, it's the, it, what's so unique about it is you're not, when the user is looking at their tablet to watch these videos, they're clicking on the important information to notice on the roadway. So they click on the brake lights of the vehicle that's directly in front. There's a halo that comes around the brake lights and there's an auditory chime. So there's, we have 11 categories of uh, critical visual information for someone to notice and on the roadway. So of those 11 critical items, um, there, there's a whole training section that teaches people what to look for. So that just goes back to what we were saying. If you don't know what to look for, you're going to miss it. So it, it puts it in that piece and the training also talks about prioritizing. So for example, if you're coming up on an intersection and there's a speed limit sign, but the traffic light is red, you should be touching the red light before you touch the speed limit sign. So it's working on executive functions from that standpoint as well as prioritizing, but that selective attention, you're going to be focused on these 11 critical items that are categories of items. Um, what's what's uh, there, The app is also broken down into different training levels. So um, a, the level one drives are like what I usually call like a very busy residential where you can expect kids running out garbage cans in the roadway, you know, trucks or vehicles coming in from left and right side and stuff like that. So a busy residential. And then level two, um, you can't, you can also not progress into the next level until you get a score of 500 out of a possible thousand points. So it's kind of gamified to, to some degree in that regard. Um, and then the level twos you can take as a suburban sort of, um, uh, shopping mall type, you know, business area. And then the level three is your complex city drives. So um, for example, um, in Southern California, the, the downtown city drive is like, 
is Rodeo Avenue, you know, just a lot going on in that area. But, you know, you can, but what's, what is also important is that you can slow down the videos and then just increase the speed as you progress, but your score won't be as high. The, the algorithm prevents you from getting a super high score just because you slowed it down. But for our rehabilitation purposes, being able to slow it down is a really nice feature and then to increase the speed as, as you go. So that's kind of where the, the app is with that. But, but the, the touching of the object is so important because um, like the touching of the brake lights or touching of the traffic light or whatever the critical stimuli that they've been directed to touch is so important because in order for you to make contact with the tablet on that object, there has to be visual, visual fixation. And visual fixation is important for part of that visual search for interpreting what you are seeing. So if you don't have that touch, you're not, you're, you might be, and this is what we run into when we don't have something like the, the drive focus app. If you're trying to teach visual search skills while the person's behind the wheel, their eyes may quickly pass over something, but did they really see it? Did they really process it? There's no way of really knowing that. And yet it's such an important part of the whole driving cycle. Um, then they also get the auditory chime and they get the visual halo. So I'm trying to also, you know, we learn best when we use multiple sensory avenues to process information. And so that's, that's there for that reason. Um, but it's also good for generalizing skills. So to Susie's point, she takes this client to a totally different environment um, and he doesn't perform as well. Well, the point of the Drive Focus app, we have these little tours. Um, the tours are for different locations. So you can go to Southern California, you can go to Toronto, you can go to South Carolina, you can go to Vermont, um, et cetera. There's a, there's a you know, number of different places. And those roadway systems do look different and they, they force you to practice generalizing and searching for things um, more effectively. I love this tool and um, I, you and I talked about it um, earlier that really the drive focus is an intervention tool. It's a tool for practicing. It's not for, um, I guess I would say making a licensing decision, right? Right. Um, it's not an assessment tool. No. Right. But um, so when I have OTs, so just thinking about application, OTs will commonly say to me, my patient, he needs to work on processing and he wants to go back to driving right away. I think about this tool because the processing piece really, when we tease it apart, comes back to their vis visual search and you know, how they're prioritizing their information. And so an app like this is a great intervention tool that the OT can bring into their clinic, their inpatient, their acute rehab, their home practice, wherever they are, and it's something accessible to the patient, right? So right. not only can the therapist or practitioner have it, but the client, the patient can get it themselves. That's right. That's right. And that goes back to that example of making sure that it was accessible to the veteran sitting in you know, Wyoming that didn't have access to treatment. Um, but yeah, it's $12.99. Um, it's an incredibly inexpensive therapeutic tool, in my it opinion. Is quite, but, it's quite the deal. Quite yeah. The deal, and there's research behind it. So, you know, there, there is some evidence behind it to also support your use of it. 
I think the other thing that I really like about it is, um, you know, and, and forgive me, I do associate, I think about you with autism. So that's where my sure. brain first and foremost. Um, but, you know, this is even the kind of thing that I've shared with new drivers. I've shared with adult drivers. I've shared with people after injuries and even my parents. So my parents oh, awesome. be 73 and I'm going, Hey, this is a great thing. Let's keep you in shape. Let's take a look at this. And then, you know, my computer programmer dad is like kind of analyzing it versus my very, uh, visually artistic mother who's taking a different approach to it but it's just such a great tool across the spectrum for sharpening or maintaining skills or improving right right exactly so so i had um you know you're you brought up autism which i could talk forever about because it's i'm so passionate about it but um working with young people with autism and, and helping them achieve driving if possible, but um, the, the app for them is really helping them prioritize what to look for because for somebody with autism, the tendency is that all things are equal or they have just difficulty directing their attention to what's needed first. Um, and there's, there, what's exciting to me is to see that there's so much research coming out that really supports the concept behind drive focus for this population, because um, it really shows over and over again that the hazard perception is, is really challenging for these individuals, and they don't necessarily know to, where to direct their attention um, to things. So that's, that's absolutely true. And to your point, um, you know, older adults, the processing speed and divided attention um, is, or multitasking is diminished. It's just something that comes, unfortunately, for many of us with, with age. And if we, now that goes back to what we were talking about, it, that's cognitive, it, there's diminished cognitive load capacity when you're talking about deficits in these areas of, of processing speed and divided attention. So we have a deficit there. So those, those skills, those, those cognitive skills are so essential for visual search. So what we need to do is go, okay, how, we're going we're gonna to address this by fine-tuning this visual search task by being efficient and effective instead of picking up on a lot of stuff that's not necessary and going to what's most important first. And that's really what's going to help to, so it's really a strategy to help compensate for that um, um, as well. So to that point, um, yeah, I, I think, you know, I could run down the list, but I think it's effective with, um, for example, with Parkinson's and, and, and MS, I should say in my clinical experience, I really don't know whether it will hold up anything, but um, for, for example, those two populations have, limitations with um, sometimes, of course, um, may have effects with difficulty with um, cicadic eye movements. Right, right. So they're, they're either slower in velocity or they don't travel as far between fixation points in the cicadic eye movements. So when you have that, um, you're, you're gonna scan more slowly so wouldn't it make sense 
to give them an edge by teaching their visual search skills so that it's well primed to be very targeted and very specific. Yeah, I love that. I guess maybe the best way to summarize that or just is it's an application across the spectrum, right? Yes. <laughs> of ages and different conditions. And in hindsight, in my brain, I'm starting to think about um, just what we're seeing as people are coming through the pandemic and who haven't been driving and now who are returning to driving. And gosh, wouldn't it have been cool if we had had a bunch of um, drivers practice on the Drive Focus app through the pandemic versus a control group maybe who didn't and see where, where we are with performance on the road, right? The hindsight is 2020. 20, yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, we, we did a little bit of that um, for just our clients that we had when we went in shutdowns in California. Um, a, a couple of, of our clients at Smith OT and driving, we, we lent them tablets or we got them to get on tablets while we were in shutdown to just keep their skills kind of primed. Um, for it. So that was kind of an interesting way of doing it. Um, I, I have to say that I, I, if I can put a little shoe in on this, the Android version of Drive Focus is the more recent version of Drive Focus. And you have to just appreciate that these are two different operating systems. And it's essentially we've created two completely different apps, even though they're both Drive Focus apps, because everything from a technology standpoint is totally different. Um, we, we are really also just from a technology perspective, um, um, people enjoy that clickable experience and you don't have to have computer knowledge um, to play with the app. Um, that, that, I mean, if you've ever used a touchscreen at an ATM machine, you have all the skills you need. You know, I mean, you're basically gonna be touching objects. You might need some help with the setup, but that's about, you know, it. Um, the Android version, there's um, a share function uh, that the person can say, I want my score shared with, you know, Susie Chijinsky, um, and you, you, they put in your email address, and then you go to your um, web browser and sign up for Drive Focus user analytics, and it's a free totally free to you. And then what you're going to do is click on your client's name and it will give you a, a, a table that gives you the number of critical items that appeared and what percentage of the time they picked up that critical item, how quickly they responded to that. So example, um, I can give you, so I had a young man with a spinal cord injury who was using Drive Focus because he's a new driver. He needs the visual search training. So I gave him, you know, he used the, the Drive Focus app for a period of time. And then he also, um, when I knew he was appropriate for driving with hand controls and that, um, you know, he's making good progress and we knew what kinds of hand controls there were, we had it installed in the family vehicle. And then he went off and practiced with his mother. And he, his mom said to me, you know, uh, she called me in advance before the next session. She goes, you know, I just don't like the way he's responding to pedestrians. It feels like I'm constantly calling out a pedestrian. And, um, and he, she says, so I really would appreciate if you could address this. 
So I went into his drive focus scores and sure enough, he's not, his percentage of times he was picking up pedestrians that were about to cross the street were really low. So I, I, when I met with him and his mom, she says, you know, um, you know, it, you know, starts to bring this up and he's very quick to say, that's not true. I'm, I'm seeing them. And I'm like, actually, I have evidence to the contrary. <laughs> but, you know, yeah, obviously, Don, he's, he's a super <laughs> wonderful kid, um, young oh. man, I should say. But, um, it, you know, it, it, and he took it. And, and But we were able to then use the Drive Focus app to kind of spend some time on looking at that visual search and picking up pedestrians. And, and I gave him, just like we talked about, like, you know where the light switch is to expect to look for it. So where you want to look for pedestrians effectively and efficiently, there are places, you know, that, you know, obviously he's not going to miss the person that's dead smack in the middle of the roadway. But the concern was that he's not picking up the ones way out in the periphery. So we talked about the importance of when you see that crosswalk, eyes shift right and left. And just even constantly between parked cars looking for pedestrians as they're stepping out. So we can help them with that location piece where we're just reinforcing the executive functions, the importance of that visual search part of things. That's just so, I think it's so useful and I love hearing kind of the stories that go along with it. I think, um, for so many of us though, the best thing is to go try it and like yes. use it ourselves, use it for me in my case with my son who's learning how to drive, but also with our clients. Can you give us a little information of where people should look for the app and also how they could get in touch with you potentially? Sure, sure. So um, you, you, you were kind of like a, a product that's sold at Walmart. You, you go right to Walmart, you buy it off the shelf there. So you kind of have to think about it. You don't drive, buy it directly from us. Um, you buy it directly from the app store. So either Google Play or um, iTunes or um, the Apple App Store for the Apple version. Um, one thing that people sometimes get hung up on, they look for it from, say, their smartphone and from the, from the you know, particular store, Google Play or Apple App Store, and you're not going to find it because Google, I, those, those stores will not let you look for an item that isn't compatible with the device you're searching from. So you have to search from the iPad when you're looking into the store um, to do then download it from for either the iPad or the Android. It has to be a compatible device. Um, the, other, the other thing is, is that for getting a hold of us or just even understanding the app and how it works, because I mean, we're talking about a very visual product and it's helpful to just visually see what in the world it is. Um, you can go to drivefocus.com and see Drive Focus there. We have videos on there um, and um, they, they kind of explore it. There's a lot of information packed in there. Um, there's also a research page that has four published studies on drive focus thus far. Um, there are multiple studies going on um, right now, universities and hospital settings um, for drive focus. And um, we'll continue to update the research pages that information becomes available. 
but um, there's lots of um, stuff on the buried at the bottom where frequently asked questions and and other videos to kind of help you. And if you're thinking about an Android one, if you're if you're deciding in the clinic which one you you want to get a tablet just specifically to use Drive Focus on, I'd encourage you to get the Android. It's a lot less expensive, and the bells and whistles of Drive Focus are just newer. So we developed the iPad version um, about five years ago, and the Android were, was released about a year ago. So of course, technology gets old quick, right? So, you know, we have to move things along and, and our next efforts will be to um, change the, the I, you know, update the iPad. Um, just another thing to know that Drive Focus is actually owned by Driver Rehabilitation Institute, which is a nonprofit. Um, so sometimes clinicians will use the app for with multiple clients um, and you can do that. Um, I would just ask that when you have an opportunity is just to donate some money to drive focus um, through driver rehabilitation Institute. We don't, we are trying very hard to just improve the quality of life of so many people. It's not about the financial part of, of things at all for us. Um, so drive focus is truly from a nonprofit and trying to do that. So if you use it with multiple clients, that's fine. Um, but just if you have a chance, just know that the app is being sold awful cheap at $12.99 per person. And for us to keep making advances, we get a lot of therapists making suggestions and they're often very good suggestions, um, but we can't implement those changes until we have the financial resources then to do that. So just keep that in mind as well. That makes sense. And that's um, all of that information about the nonprofit we can find on the website as well. Yes. And you can also go to D Driver Rehabilitation Institute, which is um, it has its own separate website. Um, so Drive Focus has one, but you can you can either one will kind of connect you to the other one. But but Driver Rehabilitation Institute is where the nonprofit sits on that right. website. Miriam, thank you so much for spending this time with us. This is just really fascinating information. And I think all of us can use it with our clients, but probably also with other people we know and share it with other people in our lives as well. Yes, great. Well, thanks for spreading the word. Thank you for listening to the Engaging Mobility Podcast. You can find links for further reading on the website, healthpromotionpartners.com. I want to thank the Colorado Department of Transportation for their support of this podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Terry Cassidy. I have a doctorate in occupational therapy, and I'm a certified driver rehabilitation specialist. As the owner of Health Promotion Partners, I help clients stay active in their community and make healthy decisions about transportation and aging in place. Susie Tichinski is an occupational therapist and certified driver rehab specialist. She is the owner of Adaptive Mobility, which provides driver rehab services as well as education for practitioners seeking to become driver rehab specialists. Learn more at adaptivemobility.com or through her Facebook group, Driving Rehab for the OT.